We have two scripture readings today. The first is the story of the fall from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The next reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, and this is... The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. It's Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said... If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him. And suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, through this sermon and this worship service and this season of Lent, 
We ask that you will tempt us out of our customary and definite way of regarding things into the great ocean of your way and world in which we can swim freely with great rapidity with the freshness of cool water. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I only want to start by saying that if Jesus had just said no in that passage, the passage itself would be much shorter and the sermon would be much, much shorter. (laughs) But, (laughs) what was that? Yeah, it would give you time to dance, yes. (laughs) I don't know what to say about that. So just as the transfiguration story that we read last Sunday appears each year, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday in the lectionary, so also the temptation story, the second story we read today, occurs on this, the first Sunday of Lent, each year. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels that narrate the life of Christ, his temptation in the wilderness follows immediately upon his baptism. This is the first time that we have seen Jesus in the New Testament since he was lost and found in the temple at age 12. So after 20 years of silence within and absence from the text, Jesus has reemerged being drawn to the fiery preacher John the Baptist in the wilderness before whom no one danced, given his judgmental message, submitting himself to baptism in the River Jordan and has now emerged from the waters ready to begin the work of his life. As soon as Jesus comes up from the waters, The first thing that happens to him is that the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, now I am aware that as soon as I introduce a character in a sermon by that name, some of you may be tempted to check out of the sermon. Names like the devil, Satan, the evil one, Beelzebul, the tempter, or any other name by which this character goes in Scripture, may lead you to feel that we are suddenly in the realm of science fiction, ancient mythology, or medieval mysticism. If the lights dim in the sanctuary, you might think we're about to practice an exorcism. But before you check out, let me give you a little bit of background to the devil. The great majority of Jewish and Christian thinkers across the centuries, me included, possess a worldview that has four basic beliefs. First, the sovereign God created the world. Second, God's sovereignty over the world has been usurped, invaded, taken over by some force allied against God. Now this usurpation is given narrative in the account of the fall 
in which the first man and first woman seek to exceed the creaturely bounds that God has established for them in the garden in which God has placed them. They eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore they seek knowledge that is reserved only for God. And they violate the only restriction that God has placed upon them. For that act of usurpation, they experience shame, a mutual blaming of one another, a fracture with and within nature, pain in both work and childbirth, and expulsion from the garden. The agent of this usurpation is the serpent, a crafty creature who uses words God has spoken to destructive ends. Now fast forward to the New Testament. In our story of the temptation, the name of this usurper is the devil, the tempter, the adversary, ha-satan, Satan. These are names throughout Scripture that are given to that force which stands in opposition to God. Jews and Christians have a basic understanding that such a force, no matter what name it goes by, remains active and powerful in the world. Third, God has responded to this usurpation By giving his kingdom over to a people that God has chosen and created through Abraham and Sarah as his own. They have entered into a covenant with God in which they have accepted responsibility for God's kingdom and seek to do and represent God's will in the world in ways that bear witness to that kingdom and benefit that kingdom. After the birth of Christ... We Christians believe that we have been grafted into this covenant people that God has created. With the same responsibility for representing God's kingdom in the world. Fourth, God's victory over this usurping power has become focused for Christians in the birth and life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The final victory will occur with Christ's return in glory, which for Jews equates to the day of the Lord, a phrase that occurs multiple times in the Old Testament. Until that day, that unknown day, both Christians and Jews believe that we live during a time when the not yet is awaiting to become the already. When initial victory is waiting to become final victory on the part of God and God's Messiah. So the basic framework of our understanding is this. Creation, fall, redemption, and final return. The temptation of Christ occurs at the beginning, at least for Christians... Of this focused redemptive phase in Christ. The beginning of the ministry of Christ's preaching and teaching and healing and acts of mercy. It marks the beginning 
of the end of the rule of the power of evil. It bears witness to the reality that while evil has been conquered in Christ, it is still present and active as a defeated power, as a conquered enemy, as a force on its way out, sometimes retreating, sometimes regrouping. But no matter how many battles evil still wins, it lacks the ultimate power to prevail over the power of God. What this means for us are three brief things. First, as I said last week, in the role that we play as followers of Christ, we need not to return to the past to live out our faith. The past is finished and gone. The present is at hand. We are to be on hand in this present moment, this present day, this present era, this present time in our lives. We are to be on hand for the kingdom of God, which is at hand, but not yet in hand. Second, we do not need to know, nor do we have access to All that is in the mind of God about the present and the future. We can and do live out our faith in a mirror darkly. Third, in each way Jesus was tempted by the devil, one of the ways to interpret or understand the nature of the temptation is that he was Tempted to provide us with a form of certainty. The certainty of food. Stones into bread for everyone, including himself, after 40 days of not eating. But stones into bread so that people would be guaranteed to be fed a precious promise in a desert. The certainty of miraculous rescue. Jesus casting himself off the tower of the temple and being rescued by angels so that everyone who saw it would be absolutely dazzled into belief. And the certainty of living under an authoritarian government where faith would come by decree and people would be free from facing any responsibility Involving choice other than saluting the emperor. Had Jesus gone along with the devil? Had he turned bread into stones? Had he thrown himself off the temple? Had he assumed control of the state and the empire? He would have, bring, he would have been bringing the future for everyone encountered, who encountered him. He would be bringing the future... For everyone who encountered him without any intervening steps on their parts. To listen to his teaching. To witness his miracles and acts of mercy. To sit with him at table with tax collectors and sinners. Or to stand with him as he faces betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, mocking, and death. 
Had Jesus gone along with the devil, people would come to blind faith without any sense of personal responsibility or of free choice. Theirs would be a faith by bread and circus, by food and drink, by dazzlement and decree. The spiritual nightmare behind Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor would come true. It would be faith by fear, not by freedom. Faith by coercion, not faith by moral agency. Believe me, we can find churches and their preachers and teachers across the world today who seek to inculcate faith through dazzle and decree. But none of these ways involve the responsibility of believers for choice or assent. None of these ways involving wor- involve working out our salvation with fear and trembling. None of these involve answering the call of Christ or the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Faith by dazzlement or decree is not faith by discipleship. My friends, as much as we would like it to be otherwise, controlling as we habitually are and the good planners that we seem born to be, we do not know the future. We do not know the condition of our climate and its ultimate impact on us. Even as we go from 81 degrees on Wednesday to snow on Thursday and to blizzard in L.A. this weekend. We do not know the pace of growth in technology. Its ultimate impact on our hearts and on our minds. Its impact on so much of what we do. Including how we learn as children and youth to interact with other human beings across similar screens and media. About how we learn to live in a community of embodied people. About how we learn to love. We do not know the outcome of the war in Ukraine and its impact on the role Russia will play in the war. And how that affects us. We do not know the future role of China, North Korea and Iran in the world. We do not know when or where the next epidemic will hit, nor when nature will next erupt into terror and tragedy. We do not know what education will be from the youngest to the most specialized of scholars in years ahead. What different schools in different states with different governing structures and authorities will teach about race and gender an orientation, and at what ages. We do not know whether technology and economic development will continue the trajectory of less starvation, of greater literacy, of lower infant mortality, of less poverty that was in effect in the years before COVID. We do not know where we will land as a nation concerning the ultimate acceptability legality or availability of abortion and how much variance there may be state to state. 
We do not know how much people of differing races and ethnic backgrounds will grow together in our nation or will grow further apart. We do not know what will happen to the millions of immigrants currently in our land now, nor how many will seek to come here and share in our freedom, our opportunity, our values. We do not know who will be the next president of the United States or the next candidates for that highest of office. We do not know what shape our national government will be in executive, legislative, judicial, and how much we will or won't remain a liberal society in the classic sense, nor how democratic we will be at federal and state and local levels. We do not know if the current decline in religious belief and affiliation in our country will level out. Or if the religious revival at a small college in Kentucky is a harbinger of another great awakening in America. A revival that has prompted Ross Douthat to pen an article in today's New York Times. You can't predict the future of religion. You can't. And perhaps most importantly, we do not know what joy will come into our lives in the next 48 hours or what tragedy will strike in the next 48 days. But this we know, this we know. When Jesus confronted the devil with scripture, the words he used came from the book of Deuteronomy, which very few of us have ever read. One does not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test and worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. It is in that same book with that same spirit that Moses said farewell to the people of Israel as he faced his own death after decades of wonderful leadership. Moses' words can assure us now, even and especially when we are tempted by the future, when our anxiety about what to do and what we don't know threatens to get the best of our faith and the best of our lives, surely, Moses said, this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It's not in heaven that you should go up and say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross over to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. No, he said, no, no, no. The word is very near to you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart for you, for you to observe. The word near to us is all that we are promised to know. But it is ultimately all that we need to know.
With it, we can assume our position as disciples of Jesus Christ. We can enroll ourselves as members of that body of God's people, placed in the world through Abraham and Sarah in the chaotic chaotic days after the Tower of Babel. That people called to lean into the world's redemption, which is the ultimate shape and promise and news of the future. With our feet planted firmly on the ground, with our hands folded in prayer and then opened for hospitality and for home building, with our heads bowed in worship or study or both, we meet each day with joy, with love, with humor with hope in the world that has been created by God that has fallen into significant disrepair but is being renewed every day before our very eyes. Amen.